course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing and Kuat Racks. Filling up the traps here. Peanut butter, pears. I should like this. So the uh, fire alarm just went off, and uh, dude, all the rats just started moving down here. It's <laughs> it's a little bit freaky. There it goes again. Oh god. Normally, in the horror film that I'm currently in, this would be the point where the the headlamp goes out and the um the dude that thought it would be a good idea to podcast from the bottom of his uh, basement gets eaten by the giant rat. Like, seriously. This is, like, so gonna happen. Like, I am such a... It is like I am a character in a horror movie. (sighs) So Becca was like, how are we gonna start the Tales of Terror episode? She's like, I just don't know what to do. And I was like, oh... I know what to do. So, um, yeah, let me describe to you where I am right now. I'm I'm on my back in a spot that is about um, 12 inches tall right now. And there are about, uh, I can see about two or three feet in front of my head. There's a lot of dust. It's hard to tell. My glasses are fogging up. There's alarms going off. And I'm kind of f***ing scared, actually. Yeah, um, I'm underneath my house right now, and right now our house is being infested by rats. And my job right now is to go down and check the traps in this crawl space. And I have to crawl on my belly, like, sort of like imagine being in a chimney, squeeze chimney, or or spelunking. Yeah, that's me. And uh, there's a lot of rats down here. It's bad. It's a long story. But I'll say this. Oh, my phone's ringing now, too. This is good. That's my safety line out. Hang on. Let me just answer this. Hello? Hello, there's a lady in the house there. Ah, she's not. Oh, man. That was a telemarketer. Anyway, you can get telemarketers while you're freaked out underneath your basement. And that, to me, is kind of the funny thing about fear, is that it's like... Dude, I'm totally fine. I'm in my house. I'm in a crawl space. There's some rats. They're they're more scared than I am. I know this. But that's how fear works. Is that it's not rational. And it's powerful. And it will stop you. Completely. In your tracks. And 
that's what this episode's all about. Celebrating that wonderful fear and those goosebumps. Happy Halloween. I really hope there are not rats in your house right now. But if there are, have faith. You'll win the war. Or at least that's what I keep telling myself. You know it's not a virtue if it's meant to hurt you. Get into a city that will swallow and desert you. Tell it to the industry of power and courtesy. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to the Tales of Terror on the Dirtbag Diaries. Our first tale is from Bix Fearer. When the head gasket on a friend Pat's Subaru Outback blew, he offered to pay gas money for whoever would haul it back down to Golden, Colorado, where he had a buyer interested in the broken-down car. Emma and I had just finished a particularly grueling week of work camping with at-risk kids from the front range of Colorado. Free gas money to go climb and lander in the Wind River range? We borrowed Emma's dad's truck and left that evening. Two days later, and after much deliberating on the one climb our time would allow, we wound up the washboard road into the Wind River Range, Pat's Outback in tow. That evening, we would camp among the granite spires of the Cirque of the Towers. After five hours of slow miles up dirt roads with the sound of the rattling trailer buzzing in our ears, we were both sick of dusty driving in the 95-degree afternoon. We reached a rise in the road and pulled truck and trailer into a rutted turnout. With no one in sight, we decided to pitch a tent so that we could nap out of the sun and save the approach to the climb for cooler, late afternoon temperatures. The tent was too stuffy in the still afternoon air, so we decided to take a walk. Across the road and past a stream, we could see a cabin maybe half a mile away. Something about that cabin both repelled me and pulled me in sat in a stand of trees in the otherwise low, shrubby, and sandy landscape. Without discussing where to go, we both approached the cabin. Emma and I looked at each other uneasily. It felt as if the hot, summer air had turned to cool fall as we got closer to this dilapidated structure. The sun caught dust in the air. Everything turned quiet and still. No bird songs. No buzzing of insects. Being rational, science-minded folks, we decided to turn around, take a nap, and shake it off. A few moments after we lay down, we heard a car drive up and stop outside of our tent, idling. The sound of tires slowly rotating on the washboard road split open the still day and interrupted our silence. I sat up in the tent and decided I would get out and see who was visiting us. I took my time putting on shirt and shoes and slowly unzipped the tent door and stuck my head out. I expected to see a ranger or climber or someone just there to ask what the hell we were doing towing a car trailer down these roads. But there was no car. The look on Emma's face told me she was as confused as I was. I got fully out of the tent stood in the middle of the flat road and looked in both directions. It was quiet as a noontime street in an old western. There was no car. There was no dust cloud from a car speeding away. Uneasy, we sat in the hot tent and talked. We settled on the fact that one of us must have dreamt the sound and insinuated it to the other. We laid back down and held each other. 
Moments later, I heard the distinct sound of a human walking a circle around our tent. The heels of large boots crunched down on the gravelly road. Twigs snapped under their weight. I tore open the door and yanked on a shirt, ready for trouble. Again, I scanned up and down the road. No one in sight. The air was still and hot, and I was terrified. Emma and I looked at each other. Her eyes were huge. We began stuffing sleeping bags and tents and throwing it all in the back of the truck with urgency. To hell with this, Emma shouted and jumped in the cab of the old Crimson Dodge. As I fumbled with the keys in the ignition, the stand of willows on a hillside about a hundred feet behind where our tent had been began to part. A clear line, with nothing visible moving, cleaved the brush. It moved at an unbelievable speed, faster than anything should move, as if a jet of air pulsed through the bush, tearing it apart. I slammed the door, started the truck, shaking, and I drove fast. Or as fast as you can trailing a car up a washboard road. We didn't talk much. We stopped in a small town to fill up a couple hours later. I bought a pack of cigarettes and sat on the hood of the truck. At first, I tried to talk about the climb we didn't do, where we would crash tonight, but eventually it came up. What the hell was that? Vitavu was about halfway home, so we decided to spend a night there among the crazy granite domes and giant boulders and climb the next morning. We pulled up to Vitavu Road in the dark and in a drizzle and found somewhere to park the truck and trailer, set up camp, share a swig off a bottle, and finally sleep. We were both slap-happy from the long drive and relieved to be somewhere familiar. Sometime in the middle of the night, I startled awake and bolted upright. I looked to my left, and in the dark tent, I saw Emma sitting stock straight. We looked at each other, and Emma shakily asked, why are you sitting up? I explained. I had dreamt that we were in the winds, and I could hear those slow steps crushing the sandy soil in a circle around our tent. Emma leaned in close to me and said, Me, too. From the Wind River Range to the coast of British Columbia, up next, Lorraine Campbell finds refuge from a storm on the deserted Copeland Islands. Or are they? Early in the spring of 2010, I solo kayaked from Sayward, Vancouver Island, 120 kilometers south to the small town of Lund. On day four, Gilfor's wind warning sounded on my VHF radio. I paddled all day like a mad woman, trying to get to the Copeland Islands on the southern edge of Desolation Sound. With much of the coastline either too exposed or steep, this would be a good place to wait out the storm. After a long day of paddling into the building, wind, and swells, I finally made it. 
No one else was on the islands this early in the season, but I felt safe and relieved. I set my tent up in the center of the island where it narrowed with a cove on either side. The huge dug fir trees moaned as they swayed in the wind. I quickly crawled into my tent to make supper. That night, the storm raged. The wind roared, growing louder as it surged towards the island. I worried about the massive trees crashing down onto my tent. I drifted fitfully in and out of sleep. I don't remember whether I was already awake or if it was the sound of approaching footsteps that woke me. The footsteps crunched loudly on gravel, heading straight towards my tent. My eyes shot open and I stared into the blackness. I lay on my stomach, frozen, trying to control my breath. My pitiful Swiss Army knife lay on the tent floor beside me, believing it could somehow protect me. I slowly reached my arm out and grabbed it. The footsteps stopped right outside my tent. I held my breath and clenched my hand in a tight grip around the knife. My heart hammered so loudly I could hardly hear anything else. Then the footsteps started walking again and headed up the hill towards the other tent pads. My mind raced. Should I get out and run? Could I swim to the mainland? How sharp is this knife? I strained to listen, but could only hear my heart thundering in my ears. Then the footsteps began to head back towards me, gravel still crunching underfoot. Again, they stopped outside my tent, and suddenly a light shone from behind, probably from a boat in the bay, I imagined. I could see the person's silhouette now. A large, wide-brimmed hat sat on their head. They quickly turned and headed back towards the water. Everything slowly began to register, and I felt a wave of relief. The hat! It must be a park ranger who had come to inspect the island for damage from the storm. I almost unzipped my tent and yelled out to catch them before they left. But just as quickly, my reasoning didn't make sense. It's the middle of the night. Why would they be here now? And with the storm still raging, why couldn't I hear the boat's motor? It was then that I noticed my hand, still clenched, but to nothing. The knife remained on the floor of my tent where it had been when I went to bed. Confused, I quickly realized I must have been dreaming, but when did I wake up? When did the dream transition to reality? I'd never had a dream so vivid, and certainly never fooling me into thinking it was reality. I convinced myself that I had been dreaming and I unsuccessfully attempted to go back to sleep. In the morning, the marine forecast still gave gale force wind warnings for the entire day. I knew I would have to stay another night. A feeling that I needed to leave began to nag on my exhausted mind. The events of the previous night kept replaying in my mind. I couldn't figure out at what point I had woken up. When I finally crawled out of my tent, I noticed that on the ground there was no gravel 
only soil and forest litter. The sound of footsteps crunching on gravel had seemed so clear to me. I must have been dreaming. Yet, the entire day I felt as though someone, or something, was watching me, and I just couldn't shake that creepy feeling. I told myself it was all in my head. No one else had been on the island, and ghosts don't exist. As night approached, my anxiety grew, and I constantly scanned my eyes across the island, thinking I might catch sight of something. Something watching me. That second night, the storm raged again. Between that and my imagination, I hardly slept. But morning eventually arrived without incident. The storm had finally lulled. I had arranged for my buddy Rowan to pick me up in Lund that afternoon. I figured it would take no more than an hour to paddle there, and so I should stay on the island until I needed to leave. I felt comforted, knowing that I would soon be off the island. And it was daytime now. I didn't need to be scared. I had been lying in my tent reading for about half an hour when a deep feeling of dread came rushing over me. My stomach reeled and I felt a chill run down my back. I had an undeniable sense that I was in danger and I needed to leave now. So I packed up camp and loaded my kayak faster than I ever have. As I pushed away from the shore in my kayak, I took a photo of the island. Maybe I would later look at it and discover an answer to what had happened. Maybe I would see something in the image. Later on the drive home, I recounted my experience to Rowan. He wondered about the island's history and who Copeland was. When I got home, I searched the internet. I couldn't find a lot of information, but what I did find was that the islands were named after Joe Copeland, a Confederate officer in the U.S. Civil War. He later robbed stagecoaches and fled to Canada, where he found refuge in the islands that were later named after him. Apparently, he rarely came to town, but when he did, he could always be seen wearing his officer's uniform. So, of course, I searched for what an officer's uniform looked like. My heart started to beat faster. I had a feeling I knew what I was about to see. And then, there it was. It just stood out. Many of the officers wore it. A wide-brimmed hat. final story comes from Kaylin Sojak. How sure can you be that you're alone in the woods? I pulled the car into a small dirt lot next to the trail just as it got dark. We pulled packs on and passed an empty ranger shack at the start of the trail. The warm glow of a singular orange bulb bolted to its side produced the only light around other than the headlamps strapped around our hats. We soon crossed paths with some people that were surely returning to the only other car in the lot. We were definitely going to be alone in these woods. It was October, and I was visiting Fredericksburg, Virginia, my hometown. I had contacted a longtime friend, Daniel, and we planned to spend the night on the White Oak Canyon Trail as soon as he finished his shift at the running store. That afternoon, I scooped him from his house and cruised two hours west to the trail. Past the ranger station, 
We followed the spring that ran next to the trail. A noise stopped us. A loud, scratching, shuffling sound that set our eyeballs to scanning the tree line. While I wondered if a man's heartbeat could crack his own ribs, our headlamps caught a large black blob slipping fluidly down the oak trunk twenty yards ahead. Black Bear. She dismounted the tree, and we lost sight of her as she scurried up the side of the mountain through the dense carpet of fallen leaves. We heard the bear come to a stop on the ridge, and her eyes looked briefly back, reflecting our lights. Once we were sure that the immediate danger had passed, we put our knives away. I hadn't even realized I'd taken it out. Two hours into our hike, we came to a 30-foot bridge that spanned the width of the stream and provided a nice spot for a beer break. The way the trail had switchbacked gave us a view of the wooden ranger shack, which, when illuminated by that oddly pleasant orange glow, almost seemed to be on fire. The water rushed loudly under our feet as we sat on our backpacks. I enjoyed a good belly laugh as Daniel graphically described how badly the bear had spooked him. When I looked up, I found myself drawn again to the light downstream. I stared for a moment, trying to blink the moisture out of my eyes. I looked at Daniel, realized he was also trained on the light, and looked back. The muted orange color had intensified to a brighter white. The color shift didn't catch our attention as much as its gradual movement away from the shack. Abandoning its post, the light traveled down the left bank then crossed the water over to the right bank, maintaining a smooth pace, unlike a light held by someone clamoring over a rocky spring. We turned our own lights off and kept watching. The glow moved steadily closer to the bridge, and suddenly, the bright white fluorescence was replaced with a much smaller, yet equally bright red light, like a lit cigarette. It maintained its course. I felt numb. It seemed like there should be a mundane explanation, yet I couldn't come up with one. Daniel didn't offer any theories either. Once the light was within 200 feet of us, sharp dread replaced the numb sensation. It felt like my guts had drained into my feet. We had tacitly agreed to move on along the trail. Hastily standing up and slinging our packs on, we took one look behind us before stepping off the steel bridge. Staring back towards the water, I no longer saw the bright red pinprick. The light had returned to its perch on the shack, and it reassumed its inviting orange luminescence. With renewed motivation, we kept walking. The trail became steeper and wound past several waterfalls, each more impressive than the last. A fog had settled on the trail and thickened as we climbed, eventually rendering our headlamps useless outside of a three-foot distance. We found a decently clear spot off the side of the trail and established our camp. The fire burned strong and provided desperately needed light, warmth, and hot food. We spent hours talking over the ideas inspired by being deep in the woods, then rolled into our hammocks for the night. In the morning, I stirred the embers from the night before and made a small fire for coffee. Daniel walked over and squatted next to me. He asked if I'd woken up at all last night. I had a surprisingly solid sleep given the cold, wet air and our unsettling experience on the bridge. 
He looked serious. Eventually, he told me he was woken up in the middle of the night. He had sat up in his hammock and looked over at mine. Saying my name a couple times, loudly, produced no effect. I was dead asleep. He looked under his hammock, behind the trees supporting the hammock, everywhere. He saw nothing but the damp dark. He said my name one more time. Finally, he sunk back into his hammock and prayed that he was no longer interesting to whatever had been tapping the back of his head. So, after those tales, I'm pretty glad that camping season is winding down up here in Washington. Thanks to Bix, Lorraine, and Kaylin for sharing your terrifying tales. And thanks to all of you who submitted scary stories this year. We had a blast reading them. Music today from Coin Locker Kid, Shema Wound, Emfrick, Kelsey Mira, and Savant Trigger. The tracks are courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley and Free Music Archive. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from you. A huge thanks to all the fans who have pledged their support, whether it's $5, $50, or $500. Every dollar helps us keep telling the stories you expect from the diaries. If you want to pledge, visit our website at dirtbagdiaries.com and click on the pledge button in the upper left-hand corner. Support comes from Patagonia. They teamed up with Sweetgrass Productions to tell the stories of a decades-long fight against the development of a ski resort deep inside the Purcell Mountains of British Columbia. Watch the Jumbo Wild trailer and find tour dates for the full film at patagonia.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing. They collaborated with Ben & Jerry's to create an ice cream-inspired beer. And so while you sip on salted caramel brownie, they'll donate the dollars to protect our winners. Scoop, sip, protect. Easy as that. Visit newbelgium.com to find a store or tap near you. And support comes from Kuat Racks, designers of a lightweight, stylish, and easy-to-use racks that help cyclists and adventurers get out and do more. Fall and rack love at kuatracks.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul, Becca Call, and me. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs>